0: This is an Odyssey original.
1: This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman.
0: And I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. Not the New Year's mashup we were hoping for. The flu and COVID at the same time. They call it Flu-Rona. First case reported in L.A. County. Add more anxiety to your pandemic bingo cards.
1: Schools in Chicago, they are closing again. The teachers union there voting to go back to remote learning because of the Omicron surge, running up against Chicago's mayor and many parents who have no desire to go back to Zoom classes. Will the same thing start happening in more school districts across the country?
0: And with the rate of new infections setting pandemic records, should we really still be focusing on cases when deciding on restrictions? A growing number of doctors say no. But we
1: start with (laughs) Fluorona. Dr. Timothy Brewer as a professor of epidemiology at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. Doctor, do you agree with us that florona is like a dumb sounding name for a disease?
2: I, I totally agree with you. <laughs> yeah, I'm see? good with coronavirus <laughs> and influenza. And I, I think yes. we can handle that.
1: Okay. So it, it is kind of self explanatory. It's somebody who gets the flu, influenza, and coronavirus infection at the same time. How much of a concern is that really?
2: So the concern is that both of these viruses can cause serious disease. But there's no concern that this is somehow new or novel or different. In the original outbreak in Wuhan City, they actually uh, tested 213 SARS-CoV-2 infected patients between January and March of 2020. And 45% of them, or 97, were co-infected with influenza A. So I'm not sure why anybody is surprised that two respiratory viruses that co-circulate at the same time of year can cause
0: co-infection. Should people who maybe get both be extra worried? I mean, I imagine your immune system is having a hard enough time dealing with one, but now you've got both. So interesting. The data on that are actually... Mix. So the,
2: the best data were actually published last month. There was a meta-analysis where they looked at 12 different studies, about 1,800 people who were co-infected with SARS-CoV-2 and influenza, about 9,000 people who just had SARS-CoV-2. And there was really no risk either in death or hospitalization ending up in an ICU or on a mechanical ventilator. However, that having been said, there is some data out of the United Kingdom where they looked at 58 co-infected individuals and they compared them with people with SARS, and they found at least among those 58 individuals, there was a higher mortality rate with with co-infection.
1: Okay, so for those people who are so inclined to panic and hit the panic button, which one do you panic the most about if you have both? Uh, Do you hit the panic button because your doctor says you got the flu and you hit the button because of the flu or because you have the COVID or both? So, so panic is
2: usually never the right response to but, any but, problems. You're right, but it is for a lot of people. But it is response for so many, yeah. Yeah. right? <laughs> right, and but we clearly are are jumping into into panic mode. So, uh, the the short answer is it depends on on who you are. So, both diseases are more likely to cause problems in the elderly. In people who have comorbid disease, particularly heart and lung disease, are immunocompromised, or who are overweight. So those are the individuals who should be reaching out to their health care providers because we actually have treatments now for both viruses. And so they should be getting in touch with their health care providers and finding out what do
0: they need to look out for and to do. Do you think there's people out there that have kind of forgotten about the flu? Because we didn't really have it last year, and we're so concerned with COVID. One of our reporters has a story today, and and he's got a quote from somebody saying, you know what, people keep testing negative, but they feel so bad, and then they wonder why, and they go, oh, right, it's the flu. (laughs) No, no, you're exactly
2: right. To put it in perspective, the CDC estimated that we had approximately about 2,500 or so hospitalizations from influenza last winter, In a typical winter, you would expect somewhere between 200 and 400,000 hospitalizations from influenza across the country. So SARS-CoV-2 definitely displaced influenza last year because of all the things we do to protect ourselves against SARS-CoV-2 work for influenza. So physical distancing, mask wearing, staying home when you're sick, washing your hands, will protect you against influenza as well as SARS-CoV-2.
1: And needless to say, but I'll say it anyway, people should be getting both the flu shot and the COVID shots, right?
2: Definitely. So the single most important thing you can do to protect yourself and those around you to either virus is to be vaccinated. And if you're already vaccinated against SARS-CoV-2 and eligible for a booster, getting a booster will help protect you against Omicron.
0: Dr. Timothy Brewer, Professor of Epidemiology, UCLA Fielding School of Public Health.
1: Young students in the Chicago School District supposed to be back in classrooms today, returning from winter break. Instead, schools are closed, frustrations are mounting, and that is because... The teachers union there voted to go back to remote learning because of the rising number of COVID cases.
0: Comes even as there seems to be growing determination among parents, selected officials, superintendents to keep those schools open almost no matter what, even with the surge that's going on.
1: With us is Jeff Freitas, president of the California Federation of Teachers, which represents more than 120,000 educational employees in the state. Uh, is what we're seeing in Chicago, teachers demanding a return to remote learning during this COVID surge. Is that going to replicate in other school districts across the country?
3: We are working with the governor and we are working with our school districts as much as we can. Um, and our priorities are to keep schools open and safe. And, th- and that's the connection there, open and safe. And uh, there, um, there may be situations in which uh, school districts need to look at alternatives, um, but our priority uh, working with our locals Local leaders look working with our districts, school districts, uh, making sure that the opportunities for students are there. And uh, and we we're also working with the governor. And the governor released a statement with us signing on to it uh, just a couple of weeks ago that we are focused on trying to keep our schools open and safe. But the priority is also the safety there.
0: Okay, so if I'm a parent, I'm hearing both those things, and it doesn't seem like it's a total yes. We're going to keep them open because if safety means they have to close, then they've got to close again or go back to online learning. So what are the levels where it's deemed Unsafe.
3: Um, so th- there are uh, situations. Of, the governor has put out uh, programs throughout the, the, the state to work with the county health offices to to look at what's going on in the districts, um, what the case rates are, what the um, absenteeism um, in terms of employees, and what the absenteeism of the students. And and we need to provide that education where and meet the students where they are. Um, there, there are no particular benchmarks because we're not trying to um, have a remote situation. We're trying to keep these open. Um, so we're leaving it up to the experts in the medical field um, to make those decisions. So there are many, They've the, the governor and the state uh, health department has increased and boost uh, boosted the number of people to do this at each of the county levels to go in and investigate what's going on. So uh, again, leaving it up to uh, those medical professions to see um, if there is a situation, I haven't heard of any situation since we've opened up in the fall where schools have closed um, in the state of California. Um, and um, we're working with uh, those agencies and those local school boards um, and those school agencies to make those right decisions. Um, some school districts have not opened this week. Um, and so, the, uh, and that was on the, the natural. Those were calendars that they created uh, well before the COVID situation. They, they took three weeks off during winter break and those were those decisions. And they are finding that they are coming back or, or being able to plan more safely after um, during this particular week. The ones that opened this week and what we saw San Francisco are having more problems because we are finding that there are high rates of, of COVID cases among our educators, among the school workers, and it's making it very difficult to staff. And that's what a situation so- um, where we are The the union is focused on keeping the schools open. So here's
1: here's where I think parents get confused because I think they they look at, say, these two cities, Chicago and Los Angeles. Transmission of covid, uh, especially the American variant, pretty high in both places. Both have very large school districts. Right. And yet one city, Chicago, chooses to go one way. Schools shut. The other, say Los Angeles, open. And I think parents get confused and they think, well, we're all people, we all are subject to the same uh, repercussions from an illness. Why these two very different approaches? Um,
3: I can speak to LA because that's in California. Um, I don't know the true relationship in Chicago, but I can tell you in LA that the school district, the administration and the, the, the educators and the unions in LA have been working hard to work together on this. Um, They have ever since the beginning had a testing program, a regular testing program program for educators and students. Um, And they have have had that in place. Uh, The governor has worked with the school district to get, um, uh, I think we're looking to get uh, uh, enough tests to get a, a testing in program and to help distribute that. And that's what they're working together on in LA. What I'm hearing and reading, like everybody else in the news, is that that was not working in Chicago. There were benchmarks that they were trying to do to provide to make sure that testing, masking, and vaccinations were in place to provide the safest education system. And and, and from what I was reading, I'm not in the situation there in Illinois, um, but what I was reading is that was not working um, with the leadership of that school district, um, which is the mayor of Chicago in LA, they were definitely working and are working very uh, tirelessly with the school district um, to make sure that everything's in place to have a safe return.
0: Jeff Radis, president of the California Federation of Teachers. Short break and then focusing on the severity of illness, not the number of infections. Maybe that's how to gauge the true impact of COVID.
1: You've no doubt seen the headlines, screaming of dubious pandemic records set during this latest surge of COVID cases. And those big numbers, with the seven-day average in this country of well over half a million new infections each day, certainly seem daunting.
0: Dr. Fauci recently said the focus of the response should now be on the number of people in the hospitals rather than those case totals. He's joining a growing list of doctors and experts who've been saying basically the same thing.
1: Dr. Monica Gandhi is one of those doctors. She's an infectious disease physician at UC San Francisco. So, Dr. Gandhi, are we focusing on the entirely wrong metric?
4: So, you know, I think the cases were tremendously important before vaccines. But in in after things, and especially in the case of Omicron, which is spreading so, so fast, we really have to think about why did we even worry about cases before? Why? Because people could get sick. People could be in the hospital. So now with vaccines and Omicron spreading so much, if we focus on hospitalizations and deaths as our metric of success, we can see that highly vaccinated regions like you down in L.A. up, 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 up here in the Bay Area, um, we're actually doing very well in terms of keeping our hospitalizations low. And that is really what we were trying to prevent. The entire time.
1: So is it just laziness that, that we all kind of just stick with this, you know, reporting of there are, you know, nine billion you know, cases today and another nine billion expected tomorrow? When we're all the, setting end,
0: records. So, yeah, we're all yeah. setting, right.
1: I mean, it, it's really sort of meaningless at this point is what you're saying. So why do we keep doing it?
4: I think we do it because there was still this idea in some people's minds that we could contain the virus. And it actually is really um, not anyone's fault that we couldn't contain the virus, but the virus itself. Four properties, it has animal reservoirs, it has a long infectious period, it looks like other respiratory pathogens, and we don't get sterilizing immunity from the vaccines. Those four properties means that it's destined to be endemic, to be still with us, to not be eradicated. But I think that the case numbers people are still focusing on because they're hoping we can contain it um, and eradicate it, but we can't, not because we didn't try, but because of the nature of the virus.
0: You and I, Charles, were talking off the air just a second ago about the numbers are probably actually so much higher because how many of us actually have had a home test? And where does that get reported to? Nowhere, Nowhere. but you and your immediate family. So it's probably way more than even the records we're setting.
4: That's correct. So that's the other reason not to focus on case counts is they're unreliable because it depends on you know, the fact that health departments don't track rapid antigen tests at home, and then some places aren't testing as much, some places are testing more, some places have mass testing sites, some don't. All of that put together means cases are becoming less meaningful. But what is meaningful is, are we preventing people from getting sick? And yes, with the vaccines, we are.
1: You know, we, we are also now in a very sort of strange uh, place, I think, with the pandemic, because I've actually heard people who are fully vaccinated, have boosters, And they haven't yet, to their knowledge anyway, uh, contracted COVID. And they actually are asking the question, why not? And they kind of are almost jealous of friends of theirs who were vaccinated who have it because they think it's some kind of a badge of honor. Are they destined to get it eventually or maybe not?
4: I think that everyone will be exposed to this very rapidly transmissible virus. Um, It would be hard not to be unless you're um, really just don't go anywhere and and always wear n95 masks even if you do it, it, it's pretty it's very transmissible the lucky thing is we've been vaccinated we've been boosted we are protected against severe disease unvaccinated I uh, don't uh, it's unfortunate but they have had the opportunity to get the vaccine and luckily it's more um, uh, it's less virulent the omicron variant we also know that if you get omicron on top of your vaccination and booster, um, it boosts your immunity even more. In fact, you get broad neutralizing antibodies against all the other variants and a stronger T-cell response. So it almost serves as a booster, which kind of refreshes your immunity, actually. So it, it's hard not to get exposed to it. It depends on, uh, you know, New York. If you looked at New York this last, over was the last month, I think a great majority of the population got exposed.
0: Dr. Monica Gandhi, infectious disease physician, UC San Francisco. Doctor, thanks.
1: We end today's Coronavirus Daily with a story about timing, because timing can be everything. We've been covering the rush to get as many rapid at-home COVID testing kits as possible into the hands of Americans during this surge of infections. But what if those rapid antigen tests are failing at doing the one thing they're most useful for, telling us when we're contagious? new research raises serious doubts about whether those rapid tests are sensitive enough to pick up a COVID infection before that person becomes extremely contagious. A small study found that the rapid at-home tests given in the early days of infection almost universally produced false negative test results, even though people were not only positive for COVID, but were likely already contagious.
0: This is an Odyssey original. Find us and others on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.